Hey everyone, Giordano here. Welcome to episode 7 of the Juice Media Podcast, a companion to the Honest Government ad series, brought to you by the Department, Department of, of Genuine, Genuine Satire. Satire. Quiet Australians. That's the title of our latest Honest Government ad. And unlike our normal videos in which I tend to focus on a specific issue, in this video I really wanted to weave together uh, a tapestry of shitfuckery by connecting the dots between seemingly separate issues from the prosecution of whistleblowers and raids on journalists to attacks on protesters and threats of outlawing secondary boycotts to the gagging of public servants, scientists and fire chiefs from talking about the links between the climate emergency and the bushfires that are raging across our eastern coast and which have blanketed Sydney in smoke. Often we tend to learn and treat these as separate issues. However, when you put it all together, the picture that forms is really concerning. And that's the picture that I wanted to try and bring to people's attention in this latest video. It's a picture of a government sliding towards authoritarianism. And joining me today on the podcast to discuss this government's transition into an authoritarian shitshow, I have the perfect guest, someone who has been inside the belly of the beast, an expert in this government's shitfuckery, we could say a professor of shitfuckery, and most importantly, a very not-quite-Australian, someone who has spoken very loudly and very powerfully, whether it was in the Australian Senate, where he served as a senator between 2008 and 2017, delivering some of the best speeches and sick burns ever recorded in our fine Hansard, or whether it was digging for truth about our dodgy arms deals with murderous regimes in Saudi Arabia, speaking up for Aboriginal land rights, speaking out against uranium mining and old growth forests logging in WA, and making a lot of noise to raise awareness about internet surveillance, fighting schemes like the mandatory data retention policy, and most recently speaking up about the climate crisis. I'm really stoked to have as our guest today on the Juice Media podcast, Scott Ludlam. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me and thanks for creating all of the things. Speaking of the things, before we get into our chat, here's a snippet from our latest Honest Government ad, The Quiet Australians. Hello, I'm from the Australian Government. As you may have noticed, we're in the process of transitioning to authoritarianism. Don't worry, you don't need to do anything. In fact, doing and saying nothing will greatly assist us in this process. For guidance, just look to the Labour Party. Sadly, not everyone knows how to be a quiet Australian. That's why, to ensure a smooth transition to authoritarianism, we're launching a new initiative. Introducing the, the Quiet, quiet Australia, Australia Policy. This episode of the Honest Government ads kind of really touches on a lot of different examples of um, the way in which the government has been trying to shut down and shut up anyone who speaks out about the government's shitfuckery. The Quiet Australia policy seems to also include our Prime Minister being utterly silent about the fact that New South Wales is on fire and right now Sydney is blanketed in a miasma of bushfire smoke. So I think this shitfuckery is probably the one that we should talk about first. What is your feeling about what this means? Um, I really liked the last Honest Government ad. I liked the last video because you can start to get a sense of what it is that's unifying all the different forms and flavors of shitfuckery that, that you're skewering every couple of weeks. I think it's good to get a bit of a picture of how these things are connected together. Uh, I guess we won't really know, will we, until we're seeing it in the rearview mirror. But I wonder whether Sydney getting absolutely smashed by toxic air for days and days and days, copping a dose of what people on the central coast and, and inland have been breathing for weeks, 
I wonder whether we might not look back and see it as something of a turning point because it's a disaster. It's an emergency out in the open and it's been paired up with an almost comical failure of the Australian government to even recognise that there's a problem. It's like this is fine dog sitting in a burning room with a cup of coffee with its eyes glazed over like in, in fucking real time. They're so catastrophically unprepared for this predictable disaster that's been creeping up on us for 30 or 40 years. And now that it's here, they're just completely off guard. And I wonder whether that might not signal quite a deep shift. Let's hope so. But obviously, let's never underestimate the shitfuckery of this government. It's almost certain that um, after heading into the last election by reassuring everyone that climate change was nothing to worry about, that we were going to meet our emission targets in a canter and everyone should just go back to school and be a quiet Australian, it's unlikely the government will be reacting to these fires as an emergency as it should. Instead, what we're likely to see is a denial of the connection between the fires that we can see with our own eyes and climate change, as scientists have been telling us, that climate change is going to be causing more intense, more catastrophic fires and longer fire seasons. I mean, look what's happening here, and summer hasn't even practically started. Um, but it's good to see now, I think uh, just yesterday, the New South Wales Environment Minister, Matt Keane, who's from the New South Wales State Liberals, he was speaking at the Energy Summit conference yesterday in Sydney and said uh, no one can deny that climate change is to blame for the smoke haze choking Sydney. Uh, that's um, in the Sydney Morning Herald today. Um, this, is not, this is not normal and doing nothing is not a solution, um, he said, which is a sign of hope, I guess. Uh, do you see this government being able to finally admit the connection and listen to scientists or will Scott Morrison continue being this is fine doggy? I don't know. I... I um... It's really difficult to see how they'll play it. I don't think it's at all tenable for Morrison and that clique to continue pretending that this isn't real and that it isn't happening. I think there's genuine stunned paralysis that you you can bullshit people for years and years and you can do it with the backing of this kind of media machine that they've got wrapped around them, but you can't bullshit the atmosphere and you can't bullshit people's you know, people choking on, on poison air for days at a time um, that's 10 or 11 or 12 times higher than the, than the safety limits. And so when that kind of reality comes home, it makes me feel like at, at, at long last in a significant way with a very, you know, the, the largest city in the country, the climate has become a political actor. And people have been warning that this was going to happen for a, a tremendously long time. Now it's here. The government is hopelessly out of its depth. And I don't think they're going to be able to just bluff it out and pretend that there's no connection. I think it's encouraging that there are people falling out and going a different way who've kind of broken cover because um, I think there's there's always going to be a tiny and probably quite loud minority of people who are going to be denying that this is happening all the way up until they have seawater in their lounge room. But most people get it most people deeply get it and they want better than they're getting at the moment uh from this appalling shit show keeping in mind i guess that this isn't you know people accuse the government of inaction on climate change this isn't inaction they have been pouring petrol everywhere they've been doing everything possible to delay and sabotage a transition that is you know urgently getting underway elsewhere 
So I think actually they've been very active. They've been very busy. They've been deliberately in a very premeditated way, putting us in harm's way. And now the harm is here. Angus Taylor, who is currently under, I mean, you can't make this shit up. I mean, I, I just, I, you know, I, one of the reasons I love talking to you, Scott, is you sort of really appreciate the, the scale of, of the shitfuckery. It, you have to kind of like step back and it's almost impressive and worthy of, of applause from a, you know, a, in a perverted kind of way, because it's just, you can't make this shit up. So yeah, we have this pol- <laughs> this minister under police investigation uh, currently representing us on the world stage at the COP25 climate summit, trying to ensure that Australia shirks its responsibilities to reduce emissions by trying to tap into some legal bullshit accounting loopholes by using carryover credits from the Kyoto Protocol days, whilst back home the country is literally on fire and Sydney is covered in a cloud of smog. And if that doesn't sum up our government, I don't know what does. Of course, the Australian government isn't the only one trying to take the piss and shirk its responsibilities when it comes to the climate crisis, but Australia is certainly right there at the top in terms of shitfuckery when when it comes to this issue, particularly when we look at the way in which it has responded to the climate protests that have been taking place here in Australia this year. We've seen a very authoritarian response with heavy-handed tactics used against protesters and claims of outlawing secondary boycotts um, that are aimed at polluters. And you've been directly in the line of fire of that. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about your experience of putting yourself, um, your own body on the line together with um, other brave protesters uh, during the October rebellion um, and your arrest. Uh, Yes, sure. Well, I mean, it was, it's something that I've, wanted to do for a little while i feel very strongly that direct action that nonviolent direct actions got quite a central part to play in the next phase of of movement building we've we we're going i think from a point where there's this widespread institutional paralysis where industry has basically taken over energy policy and it's been controlling it for years And now cover has been blown, the mask has slipped, people can't breathe anymore. And that's the consequences of that capture of of policy, capture of the state is falling due. And we're very late to this party. Like this, other parts of the world have have got it much Mm. more deeply. Australia has been kind of held back Mm. in a way, even though Aboriginal people have been warning us for more than 200 years that we can't continue to live like this, just flattening the place and gouging it and mining the shit out of it. And now the consequences Mm. are falling due. And historically, direct action has played an incredibly important part when the state machineries have kind of seized up or been captured by by special interests. um, That one way of kind of shaking things loose, snapping ourselves out of it, is to put ourselves in the way uh, and to directly challenge um, challenge the state in a very visible way and hopefully very spectacular way where unmistakably you're saying these rules are bullshit, these laws need to be transgressed, these lines need to be crossed because if we continue to just sit here and, and behave, we're going to get more of what we're getting and that's put us at, at enormous risk. And I think in concert with all of the other older parts of the movement that have been working at this for decades, and other kind of new formations like the school strike, where a whole generation has taken these matters into their own hands, you start to see the emergence of um, of a new kind of movement ecosystem, a new kind of movement that's demonstrating with a great deal of urgency. I think it's really timely. 
Isn't it um, crazy? You know, a lot of the the protests that uh, that happened were attacked for being so inconvenient and dis disruptive. Um, and now you've got another form of inconvenience and disruption, which is this cloud of smoke that is basically setting. Yeah. Not being able to it's breathe a, is um, really inconvenient. It's a little bit inconvenient, yeah, I would say. The timing of things um, is really interesting. And uh, earlier when we were chatting, you, you, you said something really powerful about, you know, the planet is now becoming a player in, in, in these political events. Um, expand a little bit on that, because I thought that was a really interesting thing you said earlier. Well, I think it, for, for a long while, what what we've been able to get away with people living in kind of cocooned western societies surrounded by technology in air conditioning uh with food that's wrapped in plastic from a long way away is you kind of cocoon yourself from the realities of life on an agricultural organic planet and we've become very distanced and very separated from it and our politics operates inside a lot of it of our politics operates inside that bubble as well it operates inside a cocoon that um, is actually very distanced and very divorced from seasons, from extinctions, from slow changes in the climate, from you know the things that are actually sustaining and, and keeping the planet alive. Our politics is operating kind of at right angles to that as though it doesn't exist. And our economics is quite explicitly designed um, and formulated around an infinite sink of resources from which we can just vacuum up at ever increasing rates of growth and then use it for 15 seconds and then chuck it outside and it'll just pile up and there's, that has infinite capacity for absorbing our shit as well. And all of that has just hit the wall. You know, none of that is real. And I feel as though people have been warning for a really long time that you ignore her for long enough, the planet becomes a political actor and she's much bigger and older uh, than than anything that, you know, any of our fragile little political institutions. And I guess I've kind of been wondering how long it's going to take before that shoe starts to drop, where the planet itself, the atmosphere itself that we've been dumping into for, for hundreds of years exerts its own pressure and starts to tilt the political landscape. And so I think we're, we're going to see that. It's been well underway in other parts of the world. Um, in Australia, I think because industry has had such a powerful lock on the politics and on the media environment here, we kind of been held back. But there's my instinct is that there's a huge amount of pent up, built up pressure for change um, that's been kind of held held down for a very long time when that finds a way of expressing itself in a unified way, which I figure is what you're getting at with this video. Uh, I think the government could find itself rapidly on the back foot being bundled um, out, out the back door into history where they belong. Back in the day in the early Juice Media stage, I used to use a phrase, uh, history is happening, uh, which was kind of like a uh, which I need to bring back because as a, as a historian, that being my background, um, it was kind of an epiphany for me to realize that history isn't something that we study. It's not something that, you know, yes, it is something that we study in the past and, you know, it, it, things that happened. But, you know, today is going to be history tomorrow. So it really, you know, we are living in history as it is being made. And that might sound like such a completely obvious statement, but we forget. We forget that that's what's happening. 
Um, and these are historic times. Every time is historic, but realizing that it is historic and seeing the forces that are shaping our tomorrow is such an important perspective to have. And I often see in your writing and uh, you know in the way that you communicate about things that you're trying to instill that in other people as well. Well, uh, I, I really... I like the formulation though, and I like the way you're expressing that. And yeah, history is happening. The reason I like it, I guess, is because it's very active. I think often we're encouraged through the media culture that we're saturated in to be very passive, you know, to be passive receivers of history rather than recognizing, as you say, we're composed of history. We're made of it. That's what brought us to this moment in time uh, is decisions that, that we have made and that our ancestors have made. Um, going back as far as you can see and for me that's that's something that makes me quite optimistic um, and the thinking that I've been doing in the course of trying to put this book together has made me even more so I'm fucking terrified as well quite honestly we're very late to this party where we've been forced through a form I think of, of very quiet political coercion which is probably about to become much noisier We've been forced into this kind of form of compliance and submission such that the energy descent that we're called on to make uh, as, as an industrial consumer society in the next 10 or 15 years is practically vertical. If we'd started this in the 1990s, it would have been much gentler. And of course, people were trying and were prevented from, from getting that transition underway. And so now the transition is practically vertical. It's going to be disruptive. And that's one of the messages, I suppose, of Extinction Rebellion as well. We apologize for the disruption, but let's get started. Let's really get onto this. The hour is very, very late. Nobody knows how this is going to end up. Um, but obviously, it's going to be exceptionally disruptive as a society that's been programmed with its primary singular imperative is to grow, is to double in scale and scope about once every 25 years, has to stop or it's going to kill everybody. Um, we've never been through a moment like that before where this sort of irresistible force is going to have to meet an immovable object, otherwise everything's going to catch fire. Um, but I think it's, fo it's you know focusing people's minds on what we can do and what kind of agency we have in this country while we still do have the freedom to have these kind of conversations on air you and me where people do have the freedom to take to the streets for the time being we do have the freedom for the time being to organize to disrupt to have opinions to challenge governments and to challenge these corporations what are we going to do with that how are we going to grab that with both hands not by ourselves not as lonely atomized individuals but as people who've linked arms and taken to the streets and supported each other and looked out for each other and done it together uh, that I think is that's the moment um, for me watching Morrison's fucking dead-eyed glazed press conference the other day against a backdrop of a Sydney uh, of, of, of a city that's that looks apocalyptic for me that's the starting gun of the 2020s you know, that's our ground condition. That's where we're starting from. Let's make it better. Let's take some power back and do something healthy and creative with it. Wasn't he stuck in the building? Didn't like the lifts break down because of the fire alarms went off due to yeah, the smoke? So you've got office towers. I think it's Bly Street. So the Commonwealth Parliamentary <laughs> offices are there. It's a brand new building. It's less than 10 years old. And there's fire alarms and smoke alarms going off inside office towers all through, all through the city. 
uh, because the city... Including the one where Scott Morrison was speaking and so he wasn't able to get out of the building. Yeah. I mean, this is what you were saying, the, the, the planet becoming a political actor. It's like... That's geez, a fine-grained way for it to do that. I wasn't thinking it would be so personal, but that's wonderful. I mean, at least you <laughs> yeah. have a sense of humour as well. Let's hope so. Um, so you've mentioned Extinction Rebellion a couple of times, um, and I just wanted to ask you, because I think it's um, important... Um, there's been some controversy around the movement. Um, are you aware of some of the, the criticisms and is Extinction Rebellion doing something to sort of adapt and change um, in order to address uh, some of the concerns? Yeah, I think one of the healthy things about it is that it's been designed to be adaptive. So the people who set it up in the UK have kind of built into its DNA that it's a learning organisation, that it's a, a, a quite a decentralised movement structure uh, that is designed to learn from its mistakes and learn from the experiences as, you know, the actions that that it's able to pull off. And so we're seeing that in a really material way uh, in, in changing tactics uh, as it's meeting steeper and steeper levels of police repression. The critiques, though, some of them have been quite well-founded. So the, the main lines of critique are um, you can't superimpose past struggles of the independ independence movement in India or the civil rights movement in the United States <clears throat> um, and kind of transpose them indirectly into the sort of situations that we're facing today in industrialised societies where most of the people that you're trying to recruit into the climate movement are not heavily repressed. And it's actually a very, very different environment from trying to throw off uh, either an empire or Jim Crow. So you can't transpose the tactics or the expectations one-to-one -one, uh, and expect the same outcomes. Uh, so that's one criticism that I think is valid and that these are very active conversations inside the network, as far as I can tell. The second is that it's very white. Right. It's very white and middle-class crew. And so speaking as somebody who is both of those things, that's double-edged. Like on the one hand, it's great that people with a lot of privilege are getting involved in climate action. They're seeing directly face-to-face -face, that the police aren't our friends. Um, they're seeing how the work that we do on the ground is then mistranslated and distorted on the evening news. And a whole generation of people are getting kind of fast-forward lessons into, into how power operates. Um, but it's also... In some sense, and partly because it's been transposed from the UK, it's been accused, I think, justifiably of being pretty history blind. You know, we're, we're very late to this party. Aboriginal people here have been fighting extinction and collapse for 231 years. And so, you know, welcome to the party, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Um, folk that I've been working with, strongly paying respects to Aboriginal elders and warriors who've been at this for more than 200 years, but some of the folk joining in uh, are very clearly of the view that, well, don't confuse the issue. This is nothing to do with land rights. Why are you complicating things? Isn't this just about solar panels? And it takes a while to, it, it takes a while, I guess, to recall just how late we are to this work. And then the final thing, kind of key critique, I guess, that's been levelled at Extinction Rebellion is a somewhat naive attitude towards the police um, that has been expressed pretty strongly in the UK and, and there's been elements of it here in Australia that the police are our friends and that we can kind of de-roll them, they'll end up on our side and if we're nice to them, they'll be nice to us. And <clears throat> um, it's it's kind of, it's bullshit. Like it's it's 
not true. It's it's never been true. It's certainly not the experience of uh, of land rights campaigners or Aboriginal people or people of colour more broadly who challenge the police or even not challenging the police and find themselves uh, a deaths in custody statistic. And that, again, takes a little while to sink in for people of privilege who are coming into this work maybe for the first time to realise that actually the state and the ranks of police that we're lining up against um, will kill us if they're ordered to. They will kill us if they're given instruction to fire upon us. They will do that, uh, whether TV cameras are rolling or not. And we need to posture ourselves accordingly. We can be respectful. We can have lines of communication. We can do everything possible to make sure that people aren't getting hurt at these demonstrations. But ultimately, and we've seen this very strongly at the IMARC demonstrations in Melbourne last month, um, they're there to protect capital. They're not to, there to protect people. They'll beat the living shit out of us if we challenge them and cross the line too far. And so these are some of the things that are being adopted and adapted and absorbed into the Extinction Rebellion organising DNA. And I believe that it is a learning organisation and I, I trust a lot of the people who are involved in it to, you know, to to bring those learnings and to make sure that we're adapting, that we're staying a step ahead of the state and of the cops so that we can keep being flamboyant, keep being out there and keep turning the, turning the dial and turning the pressure up. The issue of uh, Indigenous uh, land rights, it's really interesting. We're seeing that playing out right now at COP25. Yesterday I was listening to Democracy Now! Amy Goodman's at, at the moment is in Madrid. They're on the streets doing Vox Pops. I mean, how fucking amazing is Democracy Now! I, I just can't... It's such an amazing uh, news source. Um, and they're uh, true to form covering the, the COP25 um, summit and, uh, and Amy Goodman's interviewing a lot of the people who are, you know, on the, on the margins who should really be at the centre keynote stages um, but are not. Um, and one of the people who is on the keynote um, platform and who deserves to be there is Greta, which, who is just, uh, again, uh, what an amazing um, manifestation of uh, human will that she has um that she's fulfilling in sort of kickstarting this global movement and greta to her credit has been saying you know indigenous this is her main message really was at, at cop 25 was we need to listen to indigenous people um in, in this struggle and we need to actually pay attention to what they are saying um there was a great tweet that came out yesterday um it says greta indigenous people are leading the fight against climate change and being murdered for their activism people should pay more attention to this people thank you for leading the fight against climate change greta <laughs> so it's kind of like there's this um there's a real uh sort of blind spot um in seeing the role of indigenous people in the past and in the present um in in how it fits together with uh climate so it's really good to know that Extinction Rebellion is, uh, as you said, is responding to that criticism. It's such an important one. You know, there are two very different ways in which people come to this work. People like me have the luxury to, to choose activism. You know, I, I chose it. I read about environment in books and then took myself to forest blockades and took myself into the peace movement and to uranium campaigns. And then you learn from people who didn't choose activism. You know, politics chose them by fortune of where they were born. And a lot of the most heavily polluting projects and pipelines and uranium mines and waste dumps and coal plants and slag dumps and all of the shit of the world is is forced on people who don't get to choose their activism because it's chosen them. And more often than not, in this country, 
in Canada, in Central Asia, in North America, they're, um, they're indigenous communities, they're Aboriginal communities that are having these things imposed on them. And so it's great to be able to choose activism. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't swap my life and the stuff that I've chosen for anything, but we've also got to be a bit humble and I'm I love seeing that expressed in the in the stuff that Greta is doing as well as that self-awareness of uh, we can learn a lot from campaigners who've got intergenerational experience mm. of finding this stuff off their very survival and existence in this place and time is evidence of their success um, in a humble way we we need to learn how they did that because we have to apply that at scale in our own lives and in our own communities now. So I guess you know, just to kind of close the circle on the on the on the shitfuckery situation, because we've spoken a lot about um, the climate. Um, there are a lot of other issues that we covered in in the in the Quiet Australians uh, episode. Uh, we started off with the prosecution of whistleblowers. We mentioned different cases, the raids on journalists, um, which is also another alarming facet. All of this is that um, the ability of of uh, of the public to know what our government is doing, uh, for journalists to report on what 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 it's doing, and uh, also for anyone um, to request information, which we have a right to, those abilities are being shut down and uh, and eroded at quite an alarming level. Um, in the middle of all that, we have our own um, citizen Julian Assange, who is who has been um, imprisoned in uh, a maximum security prison in Britain, where he's spending twenty three hours a day in solitary confinement. And according to doctors' reports, is you know likely his life is is at risk. Um, the Australian government has virtually abandoned him. However, George Pell, a convicted pedophile, just got a, re- a, re- a visit from um, uh, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. So we know where the the government's priorities are there in, in terms of those two um, Australians. Can you speak a little bit about that side of things, um, and potentially also in relation to an, a term that you've used? Um, in some of your writings, state capture, um, how do you see, and this is again, I know that it's a big question, but we're interested in kind of like, what is the bigger picture that's forming on that side of things? Well, the, man, none of these questions are simple. How huh? do you keep <laughs> hurling gigantic stuff at me? Um, the state capture, the, that phrase is something I, I picked up actually when I was in South Africa last year, and they use that in quite a specific way to talk about the phenomenon that's beyond corruption, the thing that's out the other side of corruption. So what we're familiar with, the idea of the donations or the money under the door or in a paper bag or sort of revolving door, the things that that you can prosecute, that you can take to court that we would commonly consider as corruption, when that becomes absolutely normalised, legalised, institutionalised and ubiquitous, you end up with this phenomenon of state capture. In <clears throat> South Africa, it's a combination of of, um, of powerful families and powerful industries. In Australia, it feels as though we've been subjected, and I feel as though the mining tax campaign against Kevin Rudd that kind of disintegrated his prime ministership was an important turning point in that regard, where uh, economic interests, in this case, the resources sector, backed by the media and the companies that finance them, effectively take control of state institutions and repurpose them. So we don't have a government at the moment that's operating in the public interest. If there was any doubt about that, I believe this last week will have resolved those doubts. 
the government is is not acting in the public interest. They can't even be asked pulling out supplies for volunteer firefighters who are now crowdsourcing for for uh, protective equipment and for the, for gas masks and that kind of stuff. They're completely pinned to the floor by interests that have captured them, and so it's the environment department, it's the health department, it's the resources department, it's uh, it's you know, regulations right across the board that were set up to protect the public interest have now been turned and redirected and misdirected to serving a very, very narrow and very particular corporate interest, which is to mine the shit out of the place while the while the, the going is still good. And you can only do that if you have a lock and a, and a control over a certain fraction of the media and if you're operating under an absolute shroud of secrecy so that people can't penetrate exactly what it is that's being done to them. And so that's why I kind of liked that last video of yours, is that it starts to draw the links between how all these things are related. If you're going to take control uh, and, and enter into this kind of process of state capture, secrecy is going to be necessary. Repression is going to be necessary. You're not going to be able to uh, hear from whistleblowers. You're not going to be able to get wide public distribution and conversation for for uh, commentators or for activists or for people who are calling them out. And the, si the system's going to go into a kind of repressive lockdown unless you can swing it and pull it back in the other direction. So that's why I think, you know, absolutely all of these things are related. We've got, um, you know, just one instance, I suppose, using state security and surveillance agencies to surveil foreign heads of state to kink gas negotiations to benefit the domestic gas industry and calling that national security. That's an example of state capture, you know, that's using the state intelligence apparatus purely for commercial interests and then smashing the whistleblowers and the lawyers who, who try to put the truth into the public domain. The raids on the ABC, the raids on the News Corp journalists, and particularly the prosecution of Julian Assange is, I think, a kind of canonical example of how the state can't operate by the light of day. It, it can't operate if there's too much truth in the winds. And so it, it shuts it down. Um, Julian has, has basically had his life destroyed. He's in the health wing of Belmarsh Prison on the outskirts of London now, facing a life, more than a life in prison, in maximum security prison in the United States, if he's extradited. Uh, and there's the real stirrings of a campaign pushing back now, which is an enormous relief, and it's fantastic to see. But we're up against these immensely powerful interests who have no problem at all using state institutions to smash the journalists and the whistleblowers who are trying to get the truth out. I feel like we're under an obligation in a way. People like Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange and Edward Snowden and Witness K, Bernard Caleri have put themselves on the line to get the truth out into the public domain. The truth is there. It's up to us now to act on it um, collectively so that these not only are these freedoms not eroded any further, but that actually we can create that step change and build the kind of society where this kind of thing just doesn't happen. When you say take action that was going to be my next question is how, how how do people in your view how do we not be quiet australians what is what can we do to take action how can we can the average person who isn't um a bernard clary or a julian assange what are sort of some practical ways to support 
The answer to that's different for for everybody. Now, Julian was a computer hacker who had an idea for a new kind of publisher. Um, Bernard Clary was a lawyer who ended up specialising in these kind of national security cases. You've decided to do a podcast. I decided to write a book. Collectively, we all decide sometimes if there's a demonstration called to attend and show that strength in numbers. Some people do art. Some people make music. Some people cook. Some people raise money to pay off the fines of arrestees. Some people go into politics. Uh, some people are doing psychotherapy and counselling for folk who are traumatised by the scale of the bullshit that's coming down on their heads. There's a place in this for everybody. And the main thing I think is probably twofold is one is to not shit on other people's contribution. This, the contributions that we each make are going to be different for each of us. We, each, we have a different place in these networks. We see the world in different ways. Anybody who's trying to make a contribution in my view, is valid. So part of it is just recognising that contributions come in all different ways. And the other, I think, is to recognise that it's all a single struggle. It's all one struggle. It's one... Um, what we're up against is a very concentrated and outwardly unified-looking thing that has a lock on our politics, on our economy, on our media, and it, it works very hard to keep us divided up and distrustful of each other. So I think what it looks like is is recognition that we're all engaged in this, we're all in it together. And uh, unless we can put aside some of our political differences and work in common cause, they're going to keep pushing us backwards and the air is going to get darker and darker. But for, as, as to what that looks like for each of us, I wouldn't presume to know. I only have an occasional grip on what that even looks like for me. I think it's different for everybody. The main thing is that it happens. Yeah. And if you're not sure, there's there's others, you know, find the others, find the other people out there who care about stuff in the same way as you do and um, go and link arms. So do whatever you can, but just don't be quiet, basically. Don't be quiet, Australians. The quiet Australian policy, yeah. we're done with it. Be noisy. While we're on a positive vibe, one of the things that does give me hope is the internet, or more specifically, the way people are using uh, the internet and social media as citizen journalists to cover the stories that aren't covered in the in the mainstream corporate media, to join the dots together, and above all, to create a counter-narrative, a voice that is speaking back to um, shitfuckery in all forms. So many people who are just kind of like really doing the work of keeping... Um, us informed uh, of what's happening um, is remarkable. There's a huge shift in the way that um, in decentralization and the way that information is understood and processed. And I feel like I, that makes me hopeful uh, that, th that that is happening. Because um, whilst there are still a lot of quiet Australians, um, God, there are some great noisy ones which uh, give me a lot of hope that, um, that we can actually use this as a, as a teachable moment um, so that we can come out of it stronger and, um, well, alive would be great. It's <laughs> a good place to start. Well, you're definitely one of those people, I think, carving out the kind of niche that you have as a uh, very public broadcaster, helping people decode the bullshit and the shitfuckery is a public service. And I don't even know that we would have had a word for that role 10 years ago, but you know, <laughs> here we are. And so that's like that's a unique thing, which I guess is a really good example of what I was talking about. You saw an opportunity, grabbed it with both hands, made it your own, and have kind of become an indispensable part of the media landscape. So 
please keep going. Look, absolutely. And um, I've got to take a chance to really thank our patrons there because, um, I yes, I saw an opportunity. Uh, I was inspired. I've got a you know, fire in the belly. I want to say things, but that wouldn't have helped um, for very long if uh, people hadn't recognized that the value of the service that uh, that we you know that we provide through the honest government ads and um, and backed us up. So you know, thanks to all our patrons listening. Um, you're the people who really make it possible for us to keep making videos and now also this podcast. Um, so yeah, it's it's. Uh, I love the fact that it's a crowdfunded project. We don't, you know, we're not funded by any particular organization, so we can say shit fuckery. We can We're not going to get taken offline, you know, um, uh, uh, funding cut by the ABC or anything like that. A lot of people say, "Why don't you go on the ABC?" I'm like, "Are you kidding? No way I'd be able to do this uh, uh, on the ABC. I'd always be like watching my back or getting someone saying you can't do that or can we change that? And it's like fuck that. You know, this is this is where it's at really. So um, thank you, patrons, and thanks uh, Scott for the for the for the kind words now i just want to wrap this up because i want to let you get back to your your book writing but just on that uh note um can you give us something um a little sort of hint a little taste about what you're working on um soon you're going to have a book published and um the listeners who have just got a taste of your mind and how you conceptualize the world i think will be really intrigued and really interested in reading your book but um yeah can you give us a little insight into it this is definitely the most stressful question of everything that you've asked me. So, <laughs> I've left it for last. You for did, a reason. <laughs> So, uh, I suppose um, one of the reasons why I wanted to come and chat to you today is the questions you threw are kind of right in the zone of the stuff that I'm writing about. I spent nearly all of, of last year traveling around the world talking to activists and journalists and Greens MPs and candidates and big g small g from all over the place anybody who would sit down and talk to me actually trying to get a read on on how people see similar problems in very very different contexts people doing the kind of work that i'm familiar with but in really unfamiliar places and so i'm in the late stages of writing uh, a book which will traverse most of the areas that we spoke about today so and hopefully be useful in a sense of having some systematic thinking underlying how the hell did we get to where we are now and what are some viable ways forward that people have tried elsewhere or that we could choose to try here that might help crack this consensus that we're locked into and bring us somewhere a bit more productive and a bit safer. So it might be something people are interested in, but I, that, that's up to everybody else. I just have to finish the damn thing. Hopefully you'll see it in the first or second quarter of next year. I'm pretty ready to get it off my desk and into the world. You have a title? No, I have a working title, which I'm not going to tell you, but we could maybe do a proper yeah, announcement uh, once my publisher okay. is happy, uh, assuming that they yes. are. What is your favorite book? Shit. Uh, well, I need a bit <laughs> of preparation for that. Uh, my favorite my favorite fiction book is, is Neuromancer by William Gibson. I love his writing style, and I like how he sneaks some really big ideas on the evolution of technology and society and politics into this kind of fast-forward science fiction writing from the 1980s. That's a classic, yeah. Total classic. Didn't he in invent the, coined the term cyberspace? Or was, yeah, was he coined the, the term his... cyberspace uh, before it really existed. He was writing in 1983 and 84 about this medium that he could see in his mind's eye, which clearly didn't exist at the time. Um, yeah. And he understood that people would do crime and that terrible things would happen in there. Uh, and so that's the setting for the book. 
And my, my favorite nonfiction book that I read this year has been a thing called Inventing the Future, uh, which is a book about post-capitalism, which is one of the most lucid expositions I've ever seen about what a post-capitalist world and the future of work could look like, but also how you would run the argument politically, how we got into the shit that we're in at the moment, and what are some strategies for cracking it. So those are my two recommendations. That sounds... Some pulpy cyberpunk yeah. fiction. Yeah and uh, a post-capitalist manifesto. Interesting, because they're both uh, sort of visionary works that try to sort of look into the future, um, it, uh, not just into the future, but actually try to imagine something that we can't quite conceptualise yet. So Truly, yeah. And, of course, um, really looking forward to seeing your book come out and um, hopefully being able to talk to you again um, about it. Um, it'd be really awesome to have you back as a guest on, on the podcast, uh, Scott. Um, I know you'll be, you'll be very busy in the new year, but thanks for making the time. Really appreciate you um, talking with me um, and sharing some of your uh, insights. Um, you're such an important voice in, in our times of putting into, into words what the fuck is happening in the world, um, and, but also blending it with some cheeky humour. Um, thank you, Scott. Thank you. I've had a ball. Oh, um I have, uh, sorry, one, one last question. This is a request from a, from a fan. Oh. How good is it to be double elite and have half a billion? <laughs> I could not possibly comment. And what's Sagittarius A like? <laughs> heavy, extremely heavy. All right, I think this is a, 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 a geek gamer question. Uh, a total geek gamer question, and we will be going into no further detail. <laughs> All right, Scott, thanks so much. Thanks for taking the time. Okay, go well. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. This was our first proper guest interview episode. Hope to do more of those in the new year. As always, a reminder that if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe in your app and recommend it to your friends and family and pets because that way we can slowly grow our subscriber base here. Big shout out to Tom Day, whose music featured in this podcast. Tom Day is also one of our patrons and uh, he very generously said, hey, if you want to use any of my music, go for it and um, he's an incredible musician so uh, if you haven't heard of him I'll put the link in the show notes um, it's the best uh, work study kind of inspirational podcast interview music um, yeah check it out and lastly huge thanks to our patrons you keep this whole enterprise going if you're not one of them please consider being one of them uh, head to patreon.com forward slash the juice media or go to our website, thejuicemedia.com forward slash support. You've been listening to the Juice Media Podcast with me, Giordano, and I'll catch you soon online for more genuine satire. Take care.